All right, so my wife is out of town for a week visiting our newest granddaughter. My daughter's gone, and so it's just me and a dog in the apartment this week. So, thank you, thank you. Uh, So I got to grocery shop last night for the first time in nearly 40 years for just myself. That was a lot of fun. So I ate well last night, and, you know, how many of you have know the power of a good haircut, right? You go get a haircut and all of a sudden you feel like Superman or Wonder Woman. Anybody, right? I feel the same way about getting a new pair of shoes. Anybody? So not only did I grocery shop, but I bought a new pair of kicks and I'm feeling good today, right? Feeling good today. So uh, I'm honored to get to preach today and be a, be a part of the series that Shane's got going on. God's mosaic. Right, we've been talking about that, and uh, we're in Exodus three. So, if you guys want to get your get your Bibles out, uh, your iPhones, wherever you've got it, we're in Exodus chapter three. So, I just listen. I I I, I do this. I do this every time that I teach and preach because listen, I believe. I don't know about you, but I believe that context is everything. Right? You, how many of you've walked into the middle of a conversation and with no context are like? What in the world is happening? Anybody? Right? Listen, context matters. And part of the frustration that most people have when they read their Bible is it's just out of context. I mean, how do you read Leviticus and then make a lick of sense out of context? Right? It just doesn't. And so much of Scripture becomes incredibly frustrating to try to understand if it has no context. Listen, I believe, as I say every time I teach, it seems like, or preach, listen, when it comes to this book, when it comes to this book, there's only one story, and that's whose story? That's God's story. Everybody say God's story. Listen, there's there's only one story playing out. It's God's story, right? And this verse here that we were taught in Bible college and took me years to understand was told was the most important verse of scripture. Genesis 3.15. You remember the situation. Adam and Eve have been tempted. They've partaken of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, the tree they were forbidden to take of. God shows up, has a conversation, and these are his words to Satan. Right? According to Isaiah and Ezekiel, Satan, an angel created by God to serve him, decided he wanted to be God, got fired from his job, but didn't end his quest to become God. Enter the garden, the temptation, the fall. Now listen to what God says. He throws the gauntlet down and says, God says to Satan, I'm going to put enmity, friction, conflict between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He goes on to say, and he, everybody say he, he. So now it's not just offspring, it's a male offspring. That male offspring will do what? Crush your head. Anybody ever had their head crushed? Probably not, right? Listen, if you get your head crushed, you probably what? You die. He's going to kill you, destroy you, and you're going to strike his heel. You're going to inflict a wound. The entirety of scripture is the battle for that verse right there. The entirety of this book is about that verse's integrity and God's ability to keep his promise. When you understand that's what's happening here, there's an 
as we learned years ago here at Tomoka, right? There is an upper story playing out. God's story. And God's story is really simple. I'm God. And here's my throne. And Satan went, I want to be God. So I want that throne. And God went, fine, let's fight. And here's how it's going to go. I'm going to bring about a male heir from this woman, Eve. He is going to enter the ring, crush you, but not before you inflict a wound. That's the Bible. And the great part is, is we get to trace that promise and its ability to stand true throughout all of these pages. And here's the incredible part. All of a sudden, the Bible becomes this living and breathing animation of this story and this conflict. Because why in the world does some of the stuff in Scripture have any part? Because when you place it up against the context of what happened, it makes tremendous amounts of sense. Right? So the garden gets close to these two people. Right? Because now we have, listen, we have this... When, when I read scripture, I follow this upper story spiritual battle that plays out. Wherever I'm reading, Matthew, whether it's John, whether it's Habakkuk, <clears throat> I find the conflict. Where's the conflict between God and Satan in this? Where is this promised seed in this story? Because that's what Satan's after. Because all I got to do is kill this seed and I win. And if I win... God's promise is broken and God's a what? Liar. And if God's a liar, Satan wins. You follow that also. But here's the problem with the upper story battle. It's reached your life and mine. Right? We're now involved in this conflict. Right? We're now a part of this. Listen listen to this verse in Romans 5.12. Therefore, just as sin entered the world through one man, Adam, and death through sin, right? What did God say? When you eat of this tree, you shall surely, you shall surely die. The spiritual, right? The spiritual presence of death showed up and it's still present today. So he says, and death came through sin. And this is what he said. And this way, death came to all men because all what? Right? And isn't that what Paul confirms in Romans 3.23? Right? In Romans 3.23, it says, For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And Genesis 3.22 tells us why. Because we are now... Here's what he said after the garden. God said, man has now become like one of what? Everybody say us. Who's the us? The us is... God has says man has become like one of us. Us is God. He's become like a God. How? Knowing good. Do you understand that man was never, never built to know good and evil? That was never what we were supposed to know. We were only supposed to know the goodness and the love of God. But because of sin, we now know what? Good and evil. Take five minutes every day, read the paper, check out a news app or turn on the TV. And guess what you see? You see how man's knowledge of good and evil plays out. Look at the millions and millions and millions and millions, if not billions, of people throughout history that the knowledge of good and evil has destroyed. Look what's playing out in the Ukraine. 
right? Look what's playing out on the streets of Chicago. Look look what's happening at the tragedy as millions of babies continue to be aborted. Guess what? Mankind was never built to know good and evil. But because we do, all of us have what? Sinned, right? All of us have. Because how many of us in here, how many of us watching online have known the good to do and not done it? And how many of us have known the wrong we shouldn't do and we still did it? Guess what? We've all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Amen. So this spiritual battle that was supposed to be between God and Satan is now our reality. We're now living in the same spiritual battle and the same spiritual fight. The difference is we have to do it here. We have to do it with a disconnect between God and myself. And the gap at times can be overwhelming. Because how do people down here in the lower story continue their faith in an upper story God and his perfect plan when everything is falling apart down here? How do you do it? It's been hard for some of us, hasn't it? I mean, the gap here, the gap here on this ground, on this piece of ground is hard to maintain faith. When the Bible says God's ways are perfect, his plan is perfect. I don't know about you, but sometimes I look at the world and I go, how is this a perfect plan? You see, the reality is it's not perfect here, but God's story is perfect. So how do we? Learn to trust in that God. How do we maintain our faith in that God? That's a struggle. It's the struggle for all of us in that spiritual realm. And so the story takes off. And if you want to, if you want to understand the Old Testament, follow this seed, right? Follow this promised heir throughout all of the pages. And what's the first thing that God does? He finds him a family. He finds this seed of family. He goes and he finds Abraham and says, hey, I'm going to make you a great nation. I'm going to bless all the families on the earth through you. And if you can count the stars of the heaven or the sands, sands on the beaches, he says, that's how many offspring you're going to have. This seed gets a family. It gets Abraham. And then Abraham has a promised son and his name is Isaac. And then Isaac has a son and his name is Jacob, who we now know as Israel. And Israel has 12 sons. And on Jacob's deathbed, he blesses his son Judah and promises the lion of the tribe of Judah will come through him and the scepter shall not depart. Not only does the seed have a family, it has a direct descendant and his name is Judah. And you follow that throughout the story. And ultimately what you find is a boy named Joseph who God prepares to rescue this seed from a famine in the, in the world. And he brings this family to Egypt. Because Joseph somehow, in his miraculous story, has continued his faith in God. And God continues to use him. And so when the rest of the world is starving to death and the rest of the world is suffering the famine, God has prepared a place in Egypt for his people, for his seed. And Joseph is the man he uses. And so... Jacob and his family come to Egypt, 70 strong. And there they remain for the next 400 plus years. And many of those years are good. Many of those years are kind. Many of those years are favorable. Because they spread out across the land of Goshen. As they spread out and they multiply and they become a couple million strong. Lots of time in Egypt was good. 
But then the Bible records for us that Joseph dies and the king of Egypt dies. And all of a sudden, the new king says, look at those two million people over there. If we don't break them, if we don't act shrewdly with them, they're going to join forces with the enemy and we're going to be in trouble. And so they begin to enslave the Israelite people and they force them into slave labor for the next 150 years. And things become terrible. And in the midst of all of this, we met a man named Moses. Everybody say Moses. Right? We learned of Moses. Right? We learned of his parents and how they rescued him by putting him in this basket and throwing him in the Nile River, right? In, in Hebrews 11, in Hebrews 11, we learn of Moses' parents. And here's what the writer of Hebrews says. It says, by faith, Moses' parents hid him for three months after he was born because they saw he was no ordinary child and they, and they were not afraid of the king's edict. What was the edict? Kill all those Israelite baby boys, Right? We're too afraid of them, so let's exterminate them. Let's cut them off at the root. But Moses' parents operated in faith in this spiritual conflict, trusted in a God whose upper story is perfect, and they protected him. And now we learn of Moses as a grown man. He gets raised by Pharaoh's daughter. He becomes an Egyptian. By everything he eats and everything he learns and every standard that he's given by his parents, he's raised in an Egyptian son. The problem is he's a Hebrew boy and his heritage remains. And so he walks out and he sees an Egyptian treating an Israelite poorly. And what does he do? He kills the Egyptian. Moses becomes a what? A murderer. Everybody say murderer. It's not an insignificant part of the story, is it? I can guarantee you we hire a lot of people around here and I don't think we've hired one murderer on staff. Aren't you comforted by that? Right? I mean, listen, I don't know about you, but if we introduced somebody and said, hey, here's our new pastor, he's an ex-murderer, I think most people would be like, whoa, right? Right? Let's just be human about this, right? Moses kills a man unprovoked. He just sees what's happening. He goes over to protect the Israelite, and he kills an Egyptian. Next thing you know, Moses freaks out because the next day, he sees two Israelites fighting, and he walks up and he goes, hey, hey, hey. We're brothers. What are we doing? And they look at him and go, what? If we don't get along, you're going to kill one of us too? So word spread. It always does about murderers, doesn't it? And the next thing you know, he freaks out and he flees because he, he's worried what will happen if the king of Egypt finds out. And he heads to Midian. Check out this map. I want to show you how far Midian is from actually where Moses was. You got that map up there? All right. So... I don't know if you can see this or not, but somewhere in this area here in the land of Goshen in Egypt is where Moses is at. All the way down here, most experts believe, is Midian. That is a long journey that he takes to run away from his past, right? Goes all the way down here, fleeing because he's a murderer. It's a long way to go. I mean, there's lots of, lots of experts, but basically what, we, what I can tell from looking at this and from reading and trying to understand, 400 to 450 miles on foot. 
Say he travels eight hours a day. It takes 50 days to get there. It was a man who was scared of his past, right? Any of you ever feel like you've been running for 450 miles from your past, right? And guess who shows up in Midian? God shows up. He's just doing his thing. He marries a woman, right? He plays hero to her and he marries this woman, right? 40 years. Everybody say 40 years. He left Egypt and for 40 years went from being the son of Pharaoh to being a shepherd. And we don't hear a peep out of Moses for 40 years. Not one. And I am convinced had God not shown up, we'd have never heard another word from that man. He was perfectly content living in Midian, living in fear of his past. And God showed up and said, boy, I got a job for you to do. I'm going to rescue I'm going to rescue my people because I've heard their cry and I've paid attention to it. And I need you to just go tell Pharaoh, let my people go. Right? And last week, if you were here, you heard Shane preach about it. And the first question that Moses asked to God was, who am I? Who am I? Why would you choose me? I'm a what? I'm a murderer. I'm a failure. Right? I've got this in my past. I'm divorced, right? I had an affair. I'm an addict. I've struggled with us. God, you can't use me. Who am I? And you know what God says? I love scripture. He doesn't even answer the question. When Moses said, who am I? You know what God said? I'm going to be with you. So who you are is irrelevant. I'm going to go and I'm going to be with you. You know, it doesn't matter what you've been. It doesn't matter who you are. It doesn't matter where you have failed. I'm going to go with you. So everything's going to be okay. Right? For some of you, that's what you need to know today. Listen, you're asking the wrong question. You're wanting to know what about me? Me, 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 me. Remember whose story is this? This is God's story. He shows up in the middle of this spiritual conflict that he's got going on because he's got this seed living in Egypt. He's got this seed being enslaved and he's got to keep his promise. So he says, Moses, I need to, I, I need to get them out of there, but I need you to go and tell Pharaoh what's happening. Well, who am I? I'm a murderer. I ran 450 miles to get away from my past. I have been silent for 40 years. Please don't bother me. And God says, who you are is irrelevant. I'm going to go with you. Listen. Hey, nothing you've got in your life that's so significant that it doesn't become irrelevant if God just goes with you. I mean, what a powerful thing. One of the things I love about being here at Tomoka is that's what we tell people. We tell people when they come to faith in Christ, listen, who you were and what you've been through is irrelevant. If God goes with you, amen and amen and amen, right? That's why we partner with so many ministries. Listen, if you knew some of the stories of the lives of the missionaries that we support, you would know we mean this real. Listen, there are lots of stories that play out. And if you knew the people that we partnered with in this church to send them across the globe to do work, you'd know we were for real. Because as long as God goes with you, it don't matter. It's irrelevant. But that gets us caught up to today. Because Moses isn't done. So once he gets told it doesn't matter who you were, I'm going to go with you. We pick up our text in Exodus chapter 13, right? And if you got that text there, Gene, I want to read that text. Exodus 3, verses 13 through 22, right? Exodus 3, 13 through 22. We pick up the narrative when God shows up to the burning bush 
and has a conversation with Moses. In verse 13, it begins this way. Oh, there it is. Moses said to God, suppose I go to the Israelites and I say to them, the God of your fathers, right? He has sent to you, sent me to you. And they asked me, what is his name? What shall I say to them? Right? Goes on to say this. God said to Moses, I am who I am. Let's read that together. Everybody online. Let's read together. I am who Right, the Hebrew verb transliterated into translated in the Greek is the idea of "I be that I be." Terrible English, but that's the translation. Right, the self-existent God. He says, "This is what you are to say to the Israelites: I am, I be has sent me to you." He goes on to say this, right. God also said to Moses, say to the Israelites, the Lord, this, this Hebrew word here is the Hebrew word Yahweh, right? Or that's how we pronounce it, but it's Y-H-W-H, right? They've added the Hebrew vowels from the word Adonai, and they've come up with Yahweh. Every time you see all caps in your translation in the Old Testament, it is Yahweh, right? It's the same root as the root for I am. He says, the Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, right? The family, the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob has sent me to you. He says, this Yahweh is my name forever. The name which I am to be remembered from generation to generation. Goes on to say this. Go, assemble the elders of Israel, say to them, the Lord, Yahweh, the God of your fathers, right? The God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob appeared to me and said, I've watched over you, right? I've seen what has been done to you in Egypt. All I have promised to bring you up, all I have, and I have promised to bring you up out of your misery in Egypt into the land of the Canaanites, the Hittites. Keep going, Gene, keep going. Right? Amorites, Perizzites, Hivites, and Jebusites, a land flowing with milk and honey. The elders of Israel will listen to you. Then you and the elders are go to the king of Egypt, and you're to say to him, The Lord, Yahweh, the God of the Hebrews, has met with us. Let us take a three-day journey into the desert to offer sacrifices to the Lord, Yahweh, our God. Keep going. But I know that the king of Egypt will not let you go unless a mighty hand compels him. So I'll stretch up my hand, strike the Egyptians with all the wonders that I will perform among them. After, he says, that Pharaoh will let you go. Verse 21. And I will make the Egyptians favorably disposed for this people so that when you leave, you will not... Go empty-handed. Every woman is to ask her neighbor and any woman living in her house for articles of silver and gold and for clothing, which you will put on your sons and daughters, and so you will plunder the Egyptians. It's quite a story, and I've got six minutes to cover it. So I'm going to take ten, and we're going to cover it, right? Two things I want you to note. Remember, listen, context matters. And the context is this. God's story is playing out. And the story is really simple. I'm God. That's my throne. And Satan says, I'm God. And that's my throne. And God says, let's have a fight. And I'm going to destroy you. 
And I'm going to do it through a seed of this woman. Follow the promise throughout the story. Right? Find it in the pages of the book. We find it here. It's in Egypt. Israel's in Egypt. So the seed's in Egypt. Satan knows where the seed is at. That seed is under tremendous bondage in Egypt, being mistreated, right? It's being enslaved. And that seed and his family cry out to God and they ask God to deliver them from their bondage. God finds a man named Moses who was a murderer and says, hey, I've got a job for you to do. Moses says, I don't want to go. Who am I? God says, it's irrelevant. I'll go with you, right? You can get through any door as long as I'm with you. And so Moses says, well, I'm going to go and I'm going to show up. And these people are going to go, by whose authority are you telling us to do this? Right? Two things here. There's some upper story revelations I want you to see. Because as you follow this promise, you learn a lot about God that will help you when you go through your story. Right? Two things. God protects his promise. Right? God protects his promise. Right? The verses in 18 and 20, what does he say? He says this about his promise. The elders... We'll listen to you, right? Then you and the elders are going to go to the king of Egypt and say to him, the Lord, the God of the Hebrews has met with us. Let's take a three-day journey into the desert, offer sacrifices to the Lord our God, right? He's going to say no, right? The king of Egypt is not going to let you go unless what? Unless a mighty hand compels him. So God says, I'll stretch out my hand. I'll strike the Egyptians with all the wonders that I will perform among them. We know them as the ten plagues, right? Listen, you need to understand something about God. When it comes to his promise, he protects his promise. He protects his promise. He makes sure that 100% of the time his promise is protected. Because what's at stake? What's at stake is that throne. Because if God breaks one promise, he's a what? He's a liar. And if he's a liar, he can't be what? It can't be God. You've been on the end of somebody lying to you, have you not? Right? It makes a difference, does it not? Because the next time they make a promise after they break a promise, do you have a hard time believing that promise? Of course you do. And if they walked into your house or into your place of work or, or in, into your home and said, Hey, I'm God, and you know they've broke promises, you're going to believe them? Nope. Listen, that promise means everything to God. You need to understand something. When it comes to God's promises, he goes to great lengths to protect them. Listen, one of the things we used to do when we baptized people, we'd give them a book after the baptism. It was called the Book of Promises. Any of you ever get that when you got baptized at Tomoka? One. Uh, it's something that I want to get us to get back to doing because, listen, everything that you need to know about God is contained in his promises. And if you can live and exist on the promises of God, you need to know this. He protects his promises. Listen to the psalmist in Psalm 145, 13. It says this, your kingdom's an everlasting kingdom and your dominion endures through all generations. The Lord, Yahweh, is faithful. Everybody read this with me. The Lord is faithful to what? All his promises and loving toward all he has made. Listen, God is a God who cares about his word. Everything about God depends on his word. Do you know that everything that God does with us, for us, and through us is based on his promises? Listen, we say, well, God can do anything. Of course he can. 
But God never does anything outside of his word. His word and his promises matter. And here's what he says. When Pharaoh says, no, you can't go, what does God say? God says, I got this. I'll stretch out my mighty hand. And I'll make sure that he has all the wonders and all the miracles he needs to see to let my people go. Listen, God's going to do God's going to do a lot to protect his promise. And you need to know that Joshua 23:14, the writer says this, "Now I'm about to go to way of all the earth," Moses said, or Joshua says, "You know with all your heart and soul that not one, not one of all the good promises the Lord Yahweh your God gave you has failed." Every promise has been fulfilled. Listen, if you're discouraged, you're uncertain about your faith, man, find the promises of God and know when you find a promise, you have a place that God will always be faithful. Amen, church? Listen, God will protect his promise. Here's the second thing I want you to, I want you to see in the upper story revelation is this, that God stays near, right, God stays near his promise. Everybody say that with me. God stays near his promise. Look at verse 16 of Exodus 3. Gene, you're doing awesome, right? It says, go, go assemble the elders of Israel and say to them, the Lord Yahweh, right? The God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, right? He reminds them, I made promises to these people. Listen to what it says. The God of The God of these fathers has appeared to me. And here's what he says. I have watched over you. I love that word, watched. It's the Hebrew word for visit, right? It's the idea that God musters, right? He musters himself. He musters his army. And he's right there where Egypt's at. You see... These people had been in Egypt for 400 years. And a large part of that time was good. But they lived as slaves under oppressive bondage for almost 150 years. How many of you have had more than one bad day in a row? It feels interminable, doesn't it? It feels like it's never going to end. And how many of you, when you've had these bad days, have cried out to God for them to end? And when we cry out to God in the middle of our bad days, when do we want them to end? Now. We do not like, right, crockpot God. We like microwave God, right? Say the prayer, be relieved. Listen, it's a crazy thing. These people lived in bondage for 150 years. That's a rough estimate. That's too high, but it's a number that you can understand. It was more than two days. It was 100 plus years. And yet scripture says, I have visited you. I've been there. Isn't it funny? It's funny to me. That God knew they were in bondage. He knew his seed was right there in bondage. He knew that Pharaoh was, was absolutely right, being unkind and oppressive to these people. And the Bible says God was right there the whole time. 
Listen, here's, here's something you and I need to be, be aware of when it comes to our oppression, when it comes to our days of bondage and fear and pain. The last thing that you and I need to do is to give God credit for being present only when things get better. Because that's not who he is. He visits. Genesis 21. Genesis 21. This is another place this verb is used. It's about Sarah. Remember Sarah? She was married to a man named Abraham. And God showed up when Abraham was 75 and said, Hey, guess what? You're going to have lots and lots of descendants. The problem was he was old and Sarah was barren. Thanks for the promise, God. I think we're pretty much done here. Right? Fast forward 25 years, the Lord was gracious to Sarah as he had said, and the Lord did for Sarah what he had what? Because God protects his promise. It goes on to say this in verse 2. Sarah became pregnant, bore a son in his old age at the very time that God had promised him. In that in that first verse is the Hebrew word, God visited Sarah. But guess how long Sarah was barren after her promise, right? She had a son, but it was 25 years later. She begged and pleaded. Abraham even tried to get Hagar pregnant to solve the riddle. And here's what you need to know. Your bad days aren't a sign that God isn't present. Because in God's upper story, he's always right near his promise. He's always right near where you're at. Now listen, we're a people, and I mean this for me, we are people that love a God of good circumstances. Amen? Man, it is so much more difficult to fall in love with a God of bad days. Of bad days, It's hard, especially when those bad days pile up one on another. Especially when one day turns to one week and one week turns to one month and one month turns to one year and one year turns to one decade and one decade turns to one century. How do you believe that God is present and visits you? Because God protects his promise. It, listen, what did he tell Moses? It don't matter who you are. I'm going to go with you. I know this isn't always comforting, but it is still true. It may not relieve your bad day, but you need to know this. God's with you. He's near you. You're not alone. It doesn't relieve, listen, it doesn't relieve your pain. It doesn't relieve your sorrow. It doesn't relieve your anger. It doesn't relieve your doubt. But I'll tell you what, I don't know if you've ever been in a dark day or a dark week or a dark month. But the power of somebody's presence makes a difference, does it not? If it's going to be somebody, why not be the Lord, Yahweh, who says, I just won't keep my promise protected, but I'll stay right near that promise. Listen to Psalm 8, 1 through 9. Psalm 8, 1 through 9. Oh, Lord, our Lord, how majestic is all your name in all the earth. He says, you've set your glory above the heavens from the lips of children and infants. You've ordained praise because of your enemies to silence the foe and the avenger. He says, when I consider, when I consider your heavens and the work of your fingers, the moon and stars, when I, when I consider all of your creation, right? He asked this question. What 
is man? Who am I that you are mindful of me, the son of man, that you would even visit him? Man, it's a legitimate question that we all have, right? But the God of the world, the God of creation, is a God who always stays near his promise. He'll be right with you. It doesn't matter who you are or what you've been or where you've come from. It doesn't even matter how bad your day is or how long that misery has lasted. God will be near you. Amen, church? Yeah, you can clap for that. That God makes God good, right? I want to get, get real quick to the lower story, right? So we've got some upper story revelations and we've got some lower story realities. Here's the first one, right? We are in good hands. Everybody say that. We are in good hands. God is in all state, right? But we're in good hands, right? What did he say? Verse 13. He said, suppose I go to the Israelites, right? He's not even on board yet. But I say to them, right? The God of your fathers sent me to you. And they ask, what's his name? And then what am I going to say to them? And God says, you say, I am who I am. That's what you say to the Israelites. Now listen, we could have spent, we could have spent the next several weeks talking about what does I am mean. And I am not even remotely qualified to try to understand what I am that I am is, right? All I know how to do is describe who I am, right? I am all of these things. And I describe all of these attributes. And guess what? In the next minute, when the service is over, some of those things could be different. Right? One minute I can be happy. In five minutes, I could be mad. Right? In ten minutes, I'm going to be hungry. Right? I change from moment to moment. The, here's, what I, here's what I know and I take from these words. God's not like me. God is who he is every moment of every day throughout all of history. It's never changed because I be that I be. I don't know about you, man. That makes me feel good, right? Like, I don't know about you, but I, I hate texting. Anybody with me? I hate texting. Does nobody hate texting in here? Oh, thank you. I hate it. You want know to hate it? Because I never really know what's going on. And I get texts that make me wonder, what am I going to walk into when I get home, right? You, you, you say something to somebody at home and you're like, hey, I'm coming home. Uh, I'm going to be bringing blah, blah, blah. And they go, K. You're like, what's, what's happening at home, right? And you get nervous, you get anxious because you don't know. Maybe they're happy. Maybe they're sad, right? Maybe it's just fine and they were busy. You don't know. I hate that. Right? You don't know what you're going to walk into. Right? How many of you are morning people? And how many of you are around people that aren't? Right? Those people are unpredictable in the morning. Sometimes it's, hey, good morning, and they bite your head off. Sometimes it's good morning, and they're like, oh, it is a good morning. Right? Don't you hate not knowing? Drives me crazy. You want to know one of the greatest things about God is? You never, ever, ever have to worry about that. Because God is, I be that I be. I'm always the same. And once you get to know me, you can count on me. I'm never going to be any different. I don't know about you. That makes me feel comfortable when I learn to trust him. Because the lower story reality is, no matter what's going on down here, I'm in good hands. 
I'm in really, really, really good hands. Just so you know, John 8 says this. Jesus says this about himself, right? John 8, I think it's the next scripture there, Gene, right? Jesus replied, if I glorify myself, my glory means nothing. My father, whom you claim as your God, is the one who glorifies me. Though you do not know him, Jesus says, I know him. And if I said I did not, I would be a liar like you. But I do know God and I keep his word. He says, Jesus says, your father, talking to the Pharisees, your father, Abraham, he rejoiced at the thought of seeing my day and he saw it and was glad. And the Jews say, you're not even 50 years old, right? And you've seen Abraham. Listen to what Jesus says. Jesus said, I tell you the truth before Abraham was born. What? I am. Listen, that same comfort you can have about God is the same comfort you can have about Jesus. Because they're the same. Right? Listen, we're in good hands, people. Man, life may be a disaster. And let's, listen, let's, this, let's just agree right here, right now. We're never going to minimize the pain and the struggle that people are going to go through in the lower story. Amen? Don't tell people who are in pain things they should be doing that they have no right to be doing. When you're in pain, it's okay to be mad. When you're in pain, it's okay to have a doubt. When you're in no pain, when you're in pain, it's okay to scream. When you're in pain, it's okay to cry. If you're there, just be silent and comfort. Can I get an amen? amen. But we also need to know we're in good hands. Because the I am of Exodus 3 is the I am of my Savior. We're always in good hands. Amen. And here's the other reality. Here's the second reality, Gene. And this is the the next one after those verses, Gene, is this. We are a part of some crazy plans. Are we not? I mean, this is an insane plan. Moses gets raised by a Pharaoh. He kills an Egyptian. He freaks out and runs to a desert 450 miles away. He marries a woman that he happened to rescue at a well by giving her water. And for the next 40 years, we don't hear a word out of this man. He seems like he's gotten off scot-free. Meanwhile, God's people, his promise, laying around in Egypt, being treated like garbage by a king that didn't know Joseph. And all of a sudden, these people are screaming to God, get us out of here, get us out of here, get us out of here. And God protects his promise. And God's great plan involves going and getting a murderer and asking him to go talk to Pharaoh. Does that sound smart to you? No, it sounds like a stupid plan to me. There's two million of us. This guy was raised by the Pharaoh. His family raised him and he killed an Egyptian. He should die. But God went, you know what? Dust him off. Get him out of the desert away from sheep. And he's my guy. It's a crazy plan. Listen, God's all about crazy plans. Do you know that part of God's plan included making a mule talk? And involved making the sun stand still to extend a day. It involved a man who committed adultery as a king, committed murder as a king, was dishonest as a king, right? It included foreign women, women of no reputation. It included tax collectors that cheated their own fellow people. And it includes you. It includes me. 
I don't know about you, but the lower store reality is, man, we are a part of some crazy plans. I don't know. I mean, I'm going to be honest with you. The fact that Kaimichi's is still going is a crazy plan to me, right? I was there in the early 80s. The fact that it's still there 41 years later doing work in that community that's now become a tourist attraction. When I took a shower in a creek bed, it's crazy to me. The work that these people are doing on the Ukrainian border in Poland, right? In those places, because there are missionaries that we support whose past is prologue and God uses people. It's a crazy plan. And the fact that Joe Pudding is the lead pastor here is a crazy plan. Listen, I went to school with him. I watched a young man go to Bible college to play baseball and preach to a wall while 30 of his classmates sat in front of him. And yet here he is almost 30 years later and God continues to use him. Listen, I don't know about you, but one of the lower store realities is we're a part of a crazy plan. Now listen, the story is going to continue and it's just going to get crazier. But I want to encourage you. Listen, when it comes to studying God's word, find the promise. Find the promise. Because if you can find the promise, you can find protection. And when you find that protection, here's what you're going to know. God is always going to be near you. Amen? Amen. Amen. Let's pray. Father, thank you for these folks, their patience, for their kindness. Thank you for the wonderful meal that awaits those who stay. And Father, as we get ready to end this thing, Lord, if there's anybody here, anybody online that needs to make a decision to accept Jesus, your son, Lord, we pray that you would do so today. And Father, if there's any of us that have wandered from being comforted by your presence and your promise, Father, remind us again how amazing they are. In Jesus' name, amen.